This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Chris Holmes, and this is Burned by Books. Here you'll find interviews with writers you already love, like Jennifer Egan and Rebecca Mackay, mixed in with up-and-coming voices like Alexandra Kleeman and Rahman Alam. You'll find us wherever you listen to podcasts, but check out previous episodes at burnedbybooks.com and on Instagram and Twitter at Burned by Books. Let's start the show. Meg Howry, in her latest novel, They're Gonna Love You, describes ballet as a mysterious alchemy of humility and obsession, and quoting the great choreographer Georges Balanchine, a question of morals. This description of dance will both guide and beguile her protagonist, Carlyle, whose obsession with ballet, on and off the stage, will mark her profoundly. In one of the most beautifully written novels of the year, Meg offers us a vision of dance as a dramatization of the beauty and cruelty of love. The story of Carlyle's life in the present and reflecting back on her youth is an exploration of these various species of love. Intimate love, deceitful love, love for a parent, for a child, for the unattainable, and of course, for an art form that demands everything from you. Carlyle will reflect on her childhood in the, in the 1980s with divorced parents after her father, Robert, comes out as gay. Her mother, Isabel, a once famed dancer under Balanchine himself, gives up her art to devote herself to parenting while her father and his partner, James, make a world of sophistication and taste for Carlyle in their Bank Street home in New York City. Through their eyes, Carlyle will see dance as both a pure art form capable of grasping so much about the spectrum of human emotion and experience, and as a business that can be ruled by petty jealousies, unhealthy obsessions, and the worst kinds of cruelty. As Carlyle seeks to understand why her relationship with Robert and James, her closest confidants, will be betrayed and abandoned, a new relationship to dance 
one driven less by obsession and more by a desire to speak through art will emerge. Both a character study that exhibits a deep, deep love for the fictions that she gives life to in her characters, and a fiercely honest ode to ballet as that which asks too much and gives so richly. They're Going to Love You is a remarkable story of family and art and the sacrifices that both demand. Meg was a professional dancer who performed with the Joffrey Ballet and the City Ballet of Los Angeles. She is the author of three previous novels, The Wanderers, The Crane's Dance, and Blind Sight. She is also the co-author, writing under the pen name Magnus Flight, of the New York Times bestseller City of Dark Magic and City of Lost Dreams. Her nonfiction has appeared in Vogue and the Los Angeles Review of Books. She currently lives in Los Angeles. Welcome to the show, Meg. Thank you so much for having me. I need to figure out a way to make that entire introduction my ringtone or something. <laughs> well, <laughs> Is it I'm... too much, do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you're here, and I'm so glad for this book. It, it's a novel from which your love of ballet leaps out in nearly every page. Ballet as an art form seems uniquely well-suited as a site of drama. There's something about its mix of physicality and fragility, the beauty of its performance and the pain of its practice. You were yourself a professional ballerina, but what makes ballet a great backdrop for the dramas of your novel? I think it makes an interesting architecture for a novel because it is architecture, it is structure. So you can find a lot of ways to tell a story using that as framing and as theme. Um, also, it's you know, incre incredibly rich. The, the, the difficulty, of course, is it's a highly technical language and a really specific viewpoint mm. that I wanted to make really accessible. Um, and so that's sort of the, I think, the challenge of using ballet as any kind of sort of score to your novel um, is finding a way to make that score accessible to all listeners uh, who might come to the idea of a quote-unquote ballet novel or something set in this world as not of interest to elite inaccessible sort of a you know silly snobby out of this world world mm-hmm yeah, and, and you you could count maybe on a reader knowing what point is uh, and, and maybe some of the positions, but that's probably it for your average reader. So how did you make the language accessible? And I'll say that I know very little about ballet, but I found nothing to be obtuse to me or or, or come difficultly. It's, it comes across so um, fluently to someone who doesn't know that word. World. So how did you make sure that the vocabulary of these structures of ballet could come through to a, an average reader? Oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that. Thank you. Um, I really am uninterested in this sort of glorification language of ballet. So that goes out immediately. <laughs> and, and to keep it really inside the body of Carlyle's body and the bodies of these characters, which makes the use of the language really physical, 
and then just whenever possible eliminating um, any kind of info drop about dance world. And I was lucky, I have a little writer's group in Los Angeles and all non-dancers, non-interested in ballet. Uh, <laughs> and they were great, you know, to, to have a look at the, you know, um, the works in progress, the drafts in progress and say, anything in here seem, stick out to you? Are you bumping on any language at all? I'm a really fierce cutter of my own work. So I'm always happy to take out anything that seems like, oh, we've stepped into ballet world now and away from all the action of the novel or the feelings of the, these characters. Well, that's a gift to be able to kill your preciouses. <laughs> is that something that you gained over time or was that a, is that something that you always have been naturally good at? I don't, I mean, I don't know that I'm always good at it because I sometimes cut too much. And a part of the editorial process for me is the editor saying, what about a little more here? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes, yeah, sometimes I think, oh, I'm, I'm protecting my characters too much. Um, it's a reluctance sometimes to, to dig in that that's my, that's always where I need to be pushed as a hmm. writer to say more. So Carlyle's mother studies under um, Balanchine himself, or Mr. B, as he was known to her. He's a background character in the novel, but he looms large. Could you tell me a little bit about your relationship to his work? That's interesting. I So I was, I came into the dancing world after uh, Balanchine had died, and but I trained under his dancers. And so I grew up really being taught um, by women who revered him and who had worked with him and, and his world was very much still present in the dance world because he really changed ballet in America and really reinvented it. And I went to School of American Ballet, which was for a summer program, which is the, the feeder school and for New York City Ballet and that whole world. And I had this strange kind of resentment for Balanchine. Um, this this sort of domination for me for me it wasn't like my first love his ballets uh, I had to grow into my understanding of them I think um, and then I always felt him it was a really complicated person in the dance world because he held such dominance over his dancers who all worshipped him in this way that I found frightening mm. and. Um, and I always found that a, a sort of complicated relationship that the dancers that had worked with him, they all seemed to have an almost religious love for dance that I didn't have. So part of it was jealousy, I think, um, that the people who had worked with him had, it, it's like they knew God or something. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so so it was a weird, a weird mythical figure um, hmm, that I that's... grew up fascinated with, but also slightly resentful of. I think that that sheds a, a great deal of light on his presence in the novel, which mm. is both god godlike but also um, ominous. I feel like. <laughs> <laughs> 
also yeah. we get, I mean, he was famous for his um, choreography of Igor Stravinsky's The Firebird, that story of good and evil between a battle between a prince and a sorcerer, where the prince is victorious because of the help of a firebird. And I find that that, that story is really paralleling a lot of Carlyle's story. Can you talk about how this piece became sort of a sounding board for Carlyle's dramas and the novel? Yes. In the first thinking of the novel, I hadn't meant to, I hadn't designed that. And, and that came almost as a surprise when I was writing it. And I, I wanted to give her a job that would be, or a possibility for a job that would be this fantastic oppor opportunity, but at just the worst time. Hmm. And, and also a job that she doesn't really want in some ways. It's not her thing. And the thing of, you know, big clap, these big classical ballets is they're incredible, they're gorgeous, they're beautiful, and they're ridiculous. The stories are ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying the quiet part out loud about ballet now. Um, and, and of course, they can be used in these really beautiful ways to touch on universal themes. And there's something transporting about sitting in the audience and watching, you know, a swan die. Um, but... I thought it was an interesting challenge for someone who's really grappling with her work and her relevance of her work and, and, and the way that she makes work to be handed this early 20th century ballet about a magic bird. And so the, the journey of her trying to figure out the relevance of that work to, to what she can bring to it is also her trying to figure out her relevance to this craft and her own voice in this craft. So mm. they begin these nice sort of parallel searches. I think I told you that uh, as soon as I, I realized that the Firebird was going to have significance in the novel, I, I began listening to it while I read mm. and I found it to be just a wonderful background to it. My parents had listened a lot to the Firebird growing up. And so it was both nostalgic, but also reflected so nicely on it. But I also saw that recently you have a, um, a soundtrack now posted with that amazing site, Large Hearted Boy. Large Hearted Boy. Yes. So good. Uh, and I, I wonder if you wanted to talk for a second about some of the other music that comes into that soundtrack and, and plays within the novel as well. Oh, fun. Yes. So there's a lot of music in this book because the people in the book care about it and work with it and have strong feelings about it. And everything on that soundtrack is, is music I was listening to a lot while working on the book. And it's really fun to choose what composers different characters would respond to. Mm. Uh, Carlyle uh, describes herself as being slightly allergic to Stravinsky. Mm. Um, and which is a funny, for me, it was an amusing <laughs> um, uh, position for her to take, uh, partly because she, her mother is, is pregnant with her and dancing on stage to Stravinsky. So she hears it in utero, basically. <laughs> um, and um, for James, uh, he's a big uh, fan of Poulenc and Scriabin, who are both, uh, if you know anything about those composers' lives, insane, lunatic, um, and in, in really interesting ways. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. That adds an interesting <laughs> layer of depth there. <laughs> both depressives, as James is. And so that was uh, fun to work with. And then 
I mean, Firebird itself, as we were sort of exchanging about, is a bonkers score. And mm -hmm. it, it's early in Stravinsky's career. And I think the job was supposed to go to Rimsky-Korsakov, someone else. And you can hear it in the score. And you can hear little shades of things to come, like Rite of Spring. Um, so it's exciting. And I, at one point, I had uh, someone talk through the orchestration for me because it looks insane on the page. It's, it, it's incredible. And I got to hear Dudamel conduct the LA Phil uh, of it about two months ago, which he did from memory. He didn't even have the score in front of him. Oh my gosh. That's I know. It was, it, it was insane. And, and everybody went nuts. It, I think Dudamel didn't even bow after he finished. He just stood there like, yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> <laughs> so it was fun. It was fun. I'm glad that um, I got to post that music because it was really important to me working on the book. Yeah, I, I think it's well. That's such a wonderful project in general, and and I do love the music in in your novel. And I'm glad to see that there's an easy way for folks to access it. Mm. They're going to love you is filled with so many kinds of love stories, but one of the most enduring and heartbreaking is Carlyle's love for James. It's not a love of physical desire, but a love for a person who sees you as a fully formed person and thinker, perhaps before you've even become that person. James leaves books out for Carlyle when she visits their Bank Street house as a, as a young woman. He introduces her to new forms of art. He has wonderful taste. He adores spending time with her. Carlyle is shaped by this um, relationship, but James's flaws, his humanness, ends up damaging Carlyle's understanding of their love. What does this kind of platonic but really all-important relationship do for a girl like Carlisle, and why is it both fundamental and ultimately somewhat damaging to her? I'm so interested in the mentor-mentee relationship and, and the kind of lines that it crosses or can cross, but how exciting it is. I was a, um, you know, I was a young person that was eager for everything and uh, and really sought out James-like people in, in my life. And I think for Carlisle, it's a, it's, it's a world that she wants so much to be a part of. And James is the kind of person that she would like to be and the kind of figure she wants to love her. Um, you know, as a mark of who of who she might be or, or being seen in a very particular way. So I think um, it's always dangerous to exalt people in our lives as she exalts James um, uh, because there is darkness there. And she, as much as she sees in him, she's missing other things of course she is because she's a young person and that i think is one of another interesting aspect of being in that kind of relationship is you're swallowing all these things that you want from this person and you're missing other things in them because you're not an adult and you can't see them fully for, for who they are and and so she she misses some kind of key elements about james and can't really parse that relationship fully i still 
love that relationship between mm-hmm. them for all that it brings. And I, I think it's part of the, what the book is saying, like these are, we have to accept the damage of these relationships too. It's part of it. It doesn't negate what is good. It's another mm. color in it. In the flashback scenes of Carlisle's childhood with Robert and James, the the moment is shadowed by the AIDS epidemic of the 1980s when Reagan refused to respond to the crisis and it being HIV positive was all but a death sentence. Robert and James watch many friends succumb to the virus and its horrors. Why did you want the beginning days of the AIDS crisis to color the relationships you imagined in the novel? I was thinking a lot about the AIDS crisis. I wrote this book during pandemic. And so as many people were, I was noting the very different response uh, from our governments and, and culturally in society to COVID from AIDS. And that really led to me making this timeline for the book for, for the young scenes, to, the childhood scenes to start in the 80s. And it was a way to approach that very difficult subject by having it, it seen through the eyes of a young person who's trying to belong to a world that is in such crisis. And I think it became important to me to just looking in that world and being having been a part of that world myself at that time and what we lost um, culturally and I mean personally of course but also a, a world that was under attack as as then later Carlisle's world the world becomes under attack um, I don't know it was it was a difficult thing to approach and I was cautious about it but then it became this again like a a part of the pain that runs through the novel that then people learn to understand in later years mm-hmm. and yeah. in a sense but it it all became wrapped again and I guess sort of tracking with with using dance as an architecture it's part of the dark architecture of the book yeah and as you say you 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 can't help but think of how much that incredibly rich center of culture in the village during that time was absolutely just uh, decimated mm. by the by the virus and the fact that that was never really taken stock of by the the culture except within the communities that suffered from it but those who were standing outside of it uh, didn't reckon with that, I don't think. Yes, and how we, I mean, how we're, how we fail to process grief is kind of a running theme, but um, I, I had a, a, an older friend um, when I was in my 20s, and, and he and his partner were in their 60s, and we became good friends and, and did a lot of things together, and, and I always felt like I was on the learning end of this relationship. I mean, they were so sophisticated and smart and all these things that I didn't know. And and at one point I said to him, oh, you know, I'm, I guess I'm a little surprised that you want to be friends with me. I always feel like I'm not as con- contributing as much to this friendship. And he said, oh, Meg, it, it means a lot for us to be friends with a young person. You see, every young person we know died. 
Mm, and I never, you know, I know, I never forgot it. And it was very much in my mind when writing, writing this book. That is, that's devastating. And certainly you feel that in, in Robert and, and James's life, mm. how much it's just deprived. And, and then we understand perhaps a little bit more uh, James's later mistakes. I don't want to give too much away mm. about the novel because I think it's such an important draw into the plot, but uh, that gives me a, a different sense of, of James's looking to youth. Right. Uh, in, in, I, I want to think about two ways in which ballet is described in the novel that are very different. And the first is Carlyle's mother's experience in, in ballet. And she's obviously this just really successful dancer, but, uh, that you know her experience is described as what makes a great artist is what makes a woman suffering devotion and endurance this strikes me as as certainly not good for the women of the world but i wonder is it good for ballet and what does that say about the the gendering of ballet and of dancing yes well, I think that that description of Isabel's view of of dance is very much a, of her generation's view of dance as this devotional act. And that I think that does change for younger generations to see it maybe in a bit more of a healthy light. But there was certainly, even still when I was in, in the profession, this idea that it was this absolute and total devotional act. And there was a, this kind of drawing the curtain over what was ugly and dark and problematic about ballet. And I mean, that's, that is sort of Isabel's take on it. And part of, I think, the gap that, that will widen up between Isabel and her daughter because they, they approach it from, from different directions. Um, yeah, and and it and it's Carlyle's uh, vision of it, especially when she talks in this just uh, miraculous bit of writing you have about why it might be powerful and why it might be a weapon for her rather than a a, a sort of silent suffering. And mm. I wonder if you'd read for us just a, a short section in which you describe really from that younger perspective how uh, how ballet and in this in this case the the power of point becomes a, a wielded like a weapon right great so um this section is carlisle is in her 40s and and working on a project and she's putting on point shoes and it pulls her back into memories of it so Today I wrap the tips of my toes in gel pads and slide them into the shoes. Back in the day, I loved point shoes, and not because they were pretty objects and a sign of maturity, though they were. Girls start point work around 11 or 12, an introduction to controlling and overcoming pain at just the right time. It's not torture. The pain gives a return that I can't imagine torture does. Dancing on point weaponizes ballet for girls. We get taller and our turns gain speed. Everything becomes more dangerous and more direct, literally more pointed. Our legs become swords. We even become louder. The shoes make a heavier tapping noise than ballet slippers. The technique involved accentuates our femininity 
At the same time, it produces larger, stronger muscles. The sense of our power, our primacy grows. It's as if you said to the boys, okay, you can catch the ball and throw the ball, but only the girls get the bat. <laughs> that is, it's such an amazing um, description and one that I've, I don't think I've ever heard ballet described in such terms. <laughs> and it feels very much like a contrast to Isabel's description. Could you talk a little bit about the, the empowerment that you're seeing in that moment? Yes. I think um, part of what draws Carlisle into dance is this ability, is, this, is the control that it gives her over her body, which is growing out of her control in that moment. And I think it will be a thing that she will return to later in her life, that she doesn't see ballet in this quite the same way as her mother does. It's, it's almost a little bit of an outsider's perspective that she brings to it. So mm. she's always thinking about dance, even as she's dancing. And it's this thinking about dance that will return her to dance later in her life when it, when it doesn't um, work out for her as a performer. So I don't know, I think that she's from the beginning, she's seeing dance from all kinds of angles. And, um, and maybe that's what gives her different perspective than her mother, who's so, who just absorbs everything as a young performer and just falls into the world in, in a quite different way. Yeah, you, uh, you paint this as a sort of maybe even an outsider's perspective, and I can't help but think of the choreographer's role as one that has to balance that inside-outside perspective, and that you know, at certain times in, in the novel, it feels like being a choreographer for Carlisle is a the thing that she did because she couldn't be a dancer. And then at others, it is a revelation that this is an art unto itself, so important, perhaps the most important art to ballet. And I wonder how you balanced that sort of insider-outsider vision of the choreographer and thinking of choreography as both the kind of uh, the hidden away Away from from what we are viewing on on stage art, but also so fundamental to the dance itself. Right. Yes, I wanted because I think um, ballet has this strange uh, ability to embed itself into your identity. So, so Carlisle grows up wanting this thing, wanting to become a ballet dancer, and when it doesn't happen, she, as most dancers do, don't blame the institution with its absurd gatekeeping um, in many ways, and it's complete dysfunction in many ways. She blames herself. <laughs> you know, she, it's not that, oh, it's, you know, it's wrong that, that you being a, not having a very specific body type would set you outside of the career. It's that she didn't work hard enough to overcome those extra inches that she carries. So, so she blames herself in the way I think a lot of um, people do, not just dancers, but, but a lot of us, you know, we don't get into the right college or the right program or the right um, aspect of life. And it's not that those institutions are, you know, crazy. It's that you know, we didn't, it's something in ourselves. So, mm. so I think, um, so part of her is, is still overcoming that aspect. And then when she finds it in herself that, that 
she might be this kind of person that can make dances, which is not something that she thought of growing up because everyone making dances as she's growing up are men. And she has really no uh, anyone to look to as a mirror or, or as a, you know, a sort of paradigm of what it looks like to be a female ballet choreographer. And so her finding this voice inside herself is, is so important to her, but, and it takes, I think, a long time for her to trust that. Um, and so, yeah, she moves back and forth sort of outside in to being the person inside the dance and being the person outside making it. And I think that might be why I, I imagine she's a really good choreographer, <laughs> is that she can place herself inside the bodies of the people that she's working with and then outside as a, as a person making art and what it looks like. I don't know if that answers your question. It, it does very much, yeah. And that's a, a wonderful description of uh, the choreographer's place in all of this. And, mm. I, and, and I wasn't thinking, although I should have been, about how much it used to be a, a male-dominated profession. I don't, has it, has it achieved something more like equity now in, in the 21st century? It's getting there. And, and when I was writing this book, I, you know, I was saying it, in 2017, largely because I did, I wanted to avoid mention of the former president. Um, mm. It's just such an awful thing to type. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I put it in 2017. But um, at, at that time, there was just starting then to to really be a big movement towards not just uh, female choreographers, but also choreographers of color. And and so we're seeing that so much more now. It's really exciting to see um, people. And a lot of um, artistic directorships are now being female-led, which is interesting too. So mm. we'll also change programming, hopefully. I, I mentioned before that there's there's this sort of unstated secret uh, at the core of the novel, the reason why Carlisle has been separated from her father and James for over a decade. We don't get an answer about it until close to the end of the novel. How did you balance needing that enigmatic secret as a as a driver and also needing to keep it under wraps? Right. It's always a tricky choice to withhold something because there's a risk that the reader will get there and go, oh, this is it. <laughs> <laughs> and I began the book really with that, with that plot in mind. That was the only thing I had for a long time is this, this entanglement and what happened and the sort of fallout from it. And I really wanted a, to look at betrayal uh, as a, you know, not just, oh, one person did a bad thing and everyone reacts to it, but three people, possibly more, did bad things. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and they all made mistakes, and our allegiances can shift depending on our point of view. Um, and and then, then the problem is, no matter how big or large or um, small that mistake is, it gets compounded by no one letting go of it, and no one figuring out a way to forgive each other for it. So I always knew that would be there, and that we would be working toward the revelation of it in the in the book and the book is is carlisle's a lot of it is withheld but simply because carlisle is so reluctant to face it so it needs to be in the back of the book not to you know as a simple plot device but uh, 
to be honest to what this character is going through is she cannot look directly at mm-hmm. this thing until she can until till we get there so um so that's always how it had to be um as i was writing it it couldn't come any earlier because that mm-hmm. character couldn't look at it at it any earlier um I'm I'm very interested in this is I w- I will reveal my first uh, um novel of yours that I've read it, it assuredly will not be the last um but I in in kind of going over your biography I saw that you have experience working in what could loosely be called genre fiction but this is a novel that just is has all of the the signs of literary fiction just sort of written all over it and and feels like the the best of serious literary fiction and i wonder how your work with genre has inflected that what we think of as a kind of more traditional novel pose right well some of this is that i came to writing from from a point of view of a reader and not, I, I never went to um, college, <laughs> let alone having an MFA. So um, so when I started writing, I knew nothing about genre or what expectations of genre were or how any of that worked. Um, and I have tried to know as little about it. I've tried to learn as little about it as possible. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's best. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so I, so, I mean, the, the books uh, that I co-wrote with, with Christina Lynch, a wonderful writer, those were us having a lot of fun as two writers. And the first one, we certainly didn't think anyone would publish because it was so bananas. And then, <laughs> and then it became, it's like my most successful book um, is, you know, the one I wrote under a different name. Um, I mean, it's successful in terms of the, you know, the sales. Um, so yeah, Magnus Flight is a New York Times bestseller. Uh, I am not yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, um, and, you know, that was fun. And, and, and we had a good time writing those books and then moving on. And then I, I suppose my last book, The Wanderers, can be thought of as science fiction. Although it certainly lives in both worlds, I think. I certainly Mm. didn't start that book thinking, I'm going to write sci-fi now. I was interested in something very different. And I think with with this book, yes, it it falls more more certainly squarely in literary fiction, as much as I understand what that wants. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and, And that's probably what I read most. Um, so, so maybe that's, you know, me coming into this world more fully. I, I remember very clearly Kazuo Ishiguro saying of Never Let Me Go and The Buried Giant, I have no interest in learning the so-called rules of these worlds. I just have a particular story I want to tell. And it sounds like that's quite similar to, to your entry into them. I think so. I mean, it's tricky because it can, that can, I think, sometimes sound quite insulting to people who work in the genre. Mm, mm. No, learn our thing. (laughs) You have to win a Nobel Prize to be able to just (laughs) throw off um, not learning anybody's rules. (laughs) That's true. I think you do. Um, So, or you can be living somewhere 
outside the maybe accepted or or mm. you know mm-hmm. the, and i sort of feel like well i'm out i'm outside it I, I don't have anything i don't know any of these people anything um because they don't particularly pay attention to me so why should i pay attention <laughs> to them that they that they are now is exciting for me but having been outside that attention for so long i have a slightly maybe different take on it <laughs> <laughs> before i let you go meg i i would love to know things that you've been reading and loving recently that you might think that our listeners would be excited to learn about ah i love this question um because i love talking about what i'm reading i've been so distracted I and mean, we're all distracted right now and having a hard time reading but and, and i'm starting something new and that always changes what you're reading right when you're when you're writing um but i found um this this short story collection by bojan lewis called sinking bell it's just i don't, I don't know it um, he's a poet as well as a as a fiction writer, and this is his first um, published story collection. Grey Wolf published it, and the stories are so good. They have this, I don't know, I think of it as a sort of poet surprise, like the way he uses language will be going in one direction, and you think it's brutal, and it's really powerful, and then there'll be this swerve that, I don't know, maybe only poets can manage. Um, mm. They're so good at at tracking things quite far apart and bringing them together. Um, but I really love the stories and they're, they're utterly unlike anything I write. So that's great. And then I was just rereading um, Lainey Zumas's Red Clocks. Did you ever read that book? I didn't, no. Oh, good. She, um, and it feels quite important still. And it was important when it came out a few years ago, but it, lo- it looks at an America where abortion laws have just changed. And, oh, wow. Okay. And abortion has become illegal and single person adoption has become illegal. And IVF is under all these new legis- all this new legislation and it's multi-character and absolutely kind of a per- uh, like a perfectly written novel. And it was so great to dive back into that again. Um, Oh, I have to read that. Oh, you have to, yes. So, so that's a book I've, I think I've given to about 20 people. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, the books that one turns to as, as a regular gift often have a, a magic about them, I think. They do, right? And, and that one, uh, everyone who I've given it to has you know, been loved this book. It's the surefire gift. So that and Bojan Lewis's short stories are on my desk right now. Well, this is the time of, of book giving coming yes. up. So um, I I can't wait to have two that I can give and also ask for because I'm a I'm a tricky buy for mm. for books. And these are two I don't know. And I'm I'm excited about both. But I want to just say that for people looking for a book to to buy or one to sort of close out an incredible year of books. Uh, Meg Howry's They're Going to Love You is one you should absolutely put on that list. I adore it. It's beautifully written. The plot is fascinating and will just draw you in. And it's been such a pleasure to get to talk to you about it, Meg. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You know what I, what a fan I am of the podcast. So this is a just a thrill for me. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's all from me for now. 
My great thanks to the brilliant Meg Howry for a riveting conversation about her newest novel, They're Going to Love You. You can find a link to purchase that novel and all Meg's recommendations at the website, burnedbybooks.com. There you'll find all our previous episodes and recommendations. It's a perfect place to look for holiday gift ideas that will support independent bookstores like Buffalo Street Books in Ithaca, New York. Next up is my interview with Jonathan Escoffrey, whose If I Survive You was a finalist for the National Book Award. Until then, this has been Burned by Books. Burned by Books.